The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Brother Wright, in leading the last song, made reference to the fact that we wanted to talk on a favorite text today, and that's true. I believe if I were to ask you what is your favorite text in all of God's Word, that you might say, many of you would say, Romans 8.28. Now that perhaps would not be the favorite with everybody, but I think many of you would say that. And if, if you, if I have a hard time believing that, it's not because you don't want to believe it. If you haven't really hugged that passage to your heart, it's not because you don't really want to. You want to believe that. And we know, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. I just suspect that may very well be your favorite passage. If not, it's one of your favorite passages. You believe it, and yet like that distressed father in Mark chapter 9, you're probably inclined to say, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. One contemporary writer has written, We are but the sport of a grim and inscrutable president of the universe. We're the playthings of chance. Now, I don't want to believe that. You don't want to believe that. You don't want to believe that there is some dark, ominous, inscrutable fate that in some cold and impersonal way juggles our fates and our lives. But you'd much rather believe that all things work together for good. To them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. And yet many people have trouble believing that, and some would say that just isn't so. Some would say, I certainly hope that's true. Some would say, I don't see how in the world it could possibly be true. The experiences of life are against it. Some would say, I want to believe it. Some say, I hope, I hope that's really the way it is. And some, despite the bitter and bludgeoning blows that can come upon us, in this life, and do, would say with Paul, I know, I know that's true. I want us to see the passage in its context. I want us to see it in its setting, because I believe that's important. Some would see the statement of Paul in Romans 8 and 28 as having to do only with spiritual and eternal salvation and ultimate good. Others would see it as having to do with every single circumstance of life, regardless of how seemingly trivial. There are many questions that might be raised. The all things in the passage, that's something of a problem. Had he said many things, most things, some things, 
we might not have had some of the questions or some of the problems with the passage that we do otherwise. But I think in order to understand it, we're going to have to look at it in its context. That's one thing we want to see, context. One thing I particularly want to stress, in a sense we've made a, an implied stress already, but I want to particularly stress the conviction that rings in the passage. And we know, whatever it is that Paul is saying, there's a ring of certainty about it. He's sure. There is no doubt. And we know that all things work together for good. I'd stress that, the ring of conviction. Then I want to deal with the concept itself. And as I do, we'll seek clarification, first of all, in terms of what Paul is not saying. He is not talking about all men in general. He is not saying that all things per se are good. I want us to see what he's not saying. But more important than that, I want us to see what he is saying. And there is a condition here to those that love God, to those who are the called called according to his purpose. Now let's look at it in context. And of course, whenever you talk about context, if you're really thinking as you ought, you're not just talking about the verse preceding the passage immediately and the verse which immediately follows. The larger context of the whole Roman letter, and that needs to be taken into account, involves emphasis upon the great theme, Romans 1 and 16, that the gospel is God's power to save. Not Moses' law, not any purely legal system, but the gospel of Christ is what saves men. The good news, the glad tidings, the euangelion, and the prefix you means good. The rest of the word has to do with the message. So the good news, the good message, the glad tidings, that Christ died for our sins, was buried and raised, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. That's God's dynamite, that's God's dynamic unto salvation, and that's what Romans is all about. The late brother R.C. Bell saw the first three chapters as stressing condemnation. All men need the gospel because all are under condemnation, all have sinned, Romans 3.23. He saw chapters 4 and 5 as having to do with justification, acquittal, forgiveness, being rendered guiltless, justified, just as if I'd never sinned and so being justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5 and 1, summarizing much of what we have in chapters 4 and 5. And then in 6 and 7, sanctification, as that one who is saved from the guilt of sin and the penalty of sin turns now from the practice of sin and is set apart. And then in chapter 8, the chapter to which we now come, glorification, the late Brother Bell would have it, and Paul does here, of course, talk about the ultimate glory. Now let's look at the more immediate context of the 8th chapter. It begins, there's no condemnation. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to them that are in Christ, Romans 8.1. Down through the 11th verse, there is a great stress upon the Spirit, which will quicken, Paul says, our mortal bodies. The Spirit by which Jesus was raised ensures if we walk in the Spirit, ultimately, even our resurrection, verse 11. Then in verses 12 through 17, we have the splendor of sonship, as we are the children of God, not having received the Spirit of bondage again unto fear, but the Spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We're heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ Jesus. 
and we're filled and thrilled with what it means to be children of God in verses about 12 through 17. Starting with about verse 18, going down through the 25th verse, we do have the ultimate glory. As Paul begins this section by saying that we reckon that the suffering of the present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. It does become apparent then that ultimate glory and ultimate salvation is very much in the mind of the apostle, very much in the mind of the Spirit as he inspires Paul in this part of the Roman letter. Now come with me to that very paragraph in which our great text is embedded. In verse 26, where the paragraph begins, the Spirit likewise helpeth our infirmity. He just said that we have a great hope, and by this hope we're saved, hope that seems not hope. For what a man seeth, what yet does he hope for? Hope then has within it the element of desire for and expectation of receiving that which is not yet reality. We're helped by our hope, but that's not all our help. The Spirit likewise helpeth our infirmity. For we know not how to pray as we ought, the American Standard has it, the King James, we know not what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. I cannot but believe that the reference here is to the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that has pervaded and permeated so much of the chapter, the same Spirit that we have back in verses 12 through 17, and even perhaps with greater emphasis in verses 1 through 11. The Spirit makes intercession. The Spirit helps. The word for help there literally means along with and over against. The Spirit lifts, bears the load, bears the burden. The particular burden is specified. We don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit helps our infirmities, making intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, them he foreordained to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he foreordained, them he called, and whom he called, them he justified, and whom he justified, them he glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not also with him freely give us all things? And by the way, it's hard to find a stopping place, isn't it, when you're going through Romans 8. You want to go on down to that crescendo and hear Paul shout, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor principalities, powers, angels, things present, things to come, height, depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ. The verses immediately preceding our text talk about a help that we have when we pray, the intercession of the Spirit. The following verses talk about God's great eternal purpose, whom he foreknew, them he foreordained to be conformed to the image of his Son, whom he foreordained, them he called, whom he called, them he justified, whom he justified, them he glorified. It does become apparent when we look carefully at the passage that our ultimate good, that the ultimate glory, that salvation now and forevermore, and certainly salvation ultimately, is very much, very, very much in the mind of the apostle, very much in the mind of the Spirit here. Does that mean that the text does not relate to those pressing 
and painful problems of life. No, I don't know that that's a warranted conclusion at all. But I think we do need to see that a thing is not really for your good unless it's for your ultimate good. That that which serves only the immediate interest of the physical or the sensual or the material and nothing more is not really for your ultimate good and ultimate good and ultimate glory and eternal salvation is much in the mind of the inspired apostle here. Now let me say something about his conviction. Paul said we know that all things work together for good. In our day, many people have become extremely adept at verbal uncertainty, even some teachers. And all they propose are hypotheses and theories, possibilities, questions. They're questions that ought to be raised. There are certainly areas in which a blind dogmatism is out of place. But don't you know that your heart and mind hungers for certainty? So many in our world guess and surmise and grope in darkness and answer the questions of the heart with another question. Isn't it wonderful to find one who writes and we know, and we know that all things work together for good? The same Paul is moved to write, we know that if the earthly house of our tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1 and following. I know whom I believed, and I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I know that this shall turn out unto my salvation through your supplication and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. The ring of conviction here, how wonderful it is. We're talking now about certainty. But now let's look at the concept itself. And let's seek for some clarification. And as we do and as we examine the concept, as we look at the consequences, as we note the condition, as we thrill to the great promise, let's see very carefully what Paul does not say. Paul, now listen, Paul is not talking about all men in general. Let's understand that. He's talking very clearly about those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. That's God's people. His purpose is the timeless, ageless purpose that we talked about last Lord's Day when we looked at the great Ephesian letter that saw God before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 and 4, purposing to gather together to sum up all things in Christ, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, the church being according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, Ephesians 3, 10 and 11. When people come into Christ and into his body, then they are the called according to his purpose. And so Paul is not talking about all men in general. There is a remarkable, wonderful impartiality about God's general providence upon all men. In the closing verses of Matthew 5, we observe what is evident. That is, that he sends his rain on the just and the unjust. He allows his sun to shine upon the unrighteous as well as the righteous, the just, and the unjust. 
an obscure Bible character in the 73rd Psalm because the psalmist there is probably not David. Aspi, as I recall, I believe is the psalmist there, and he cannot understand why the wicked prosper. And he confesses that he felt a certain envy because they did until finally he went to the sanctuary of the Lord and he saw their end. And when he saw the end of the wicked, despite their apparent prosperity right now, that problem was resolved. Paul is not talking about all men, and there is a remarkable impartiality in God's general providence. He sends his reign on just and unjust. But Paul is talking about the called, those who make up the called out, those who have come into to refer to our study from Ephesians, the body of the reconciled, those who are called according to the timeless, ageless, eternal purpose, those who love God. And God the Son said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So you see, the promise is circumscribed somewhat and limited to those who are in Christ and to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, here's something else that Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that all things are good per se, in and of themselves. That is not what he's saying. And we need to make that distinction. He is rather saying that all things work together for good. And certainly the ultimate glory, verses 18 through 25 here in Romans 8, and the ultimate good is very, very much in Paul's mind. You know, it really wouldn't do me any ultimate good to suddenly find myself unbelievably and fabulously rich if that should cause me to lose my soul, and that's what's happened in some cases. If it should cause me to be pierced through with many sorrows in the language of 1 Timothy chapter 6, it really wouldn't do me much ultimate good to have everything I want if in having that, whatever it might be, it caused me to lose my soul. God's concern is with my real good, that good that is really good, that good that is ultimate good. And the passage is saying that all things work together for good. Now this working together for good brings to mind what I'd like to call divine coordination. Coordination in any realm can be a beautiful thing, and here we have divine coordination. Paul is not saying that the deadly disease, that the peril, that the problem, that the pressure, that the hardship, that the heartache in and of itself necessarily is good. Paul has not said that all things and that everything is good. Paul rather has said that for the call according to his purpose that for those who really love God and who are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. A lot of God's working and a lot of divine coordination is already seen in the passage. It involved a purpose from eternity past. It involved his foreknowing, his foreordaining that the call would be conformed to the image of his Son, that they'd be called by the gospel, that they'd be justified, that they'd be glorified ultimately. Well, does this involve even those specific 
and sometimes heart-rending problems that come day by day? I believe it certainly can. I have to admit that the context itself argues for a working from eternity to eternity, argues for calling and justification and great spiritual realities as being at the heart of the passage. But I do believe that the bump can be a great blessing. But I also believe this, and I want to bring in a condition that may be implied in the loving the Lord here, but it's a condition that is not explicitly spelled out right in this passage. And so I want to go to another passage. And I want to bring in something here that I need and I trust you need. I don't know what the particular pressure or the particular peril or the particular problem might be. I don't know about your personal heartache. I don't know about your secret guilt, uh, grief or guilt necessarily. But I know that we all share in these, that this is our common lot, that day by day they come to us. And I'd like to suggest that certainly these things can work together for good, though they may not be good in and of themselves. I want to suggest that you can lose a lot of battles and still win the war. And I think that's worth remembering. You can lose a lot of battles and you can still win the war. Military strategists realize this. They realize that a particular event may not in and of itself be good. It may be very bad, but it may work for good. They recognize that. I tell you, my friend, I don't like buttermilk. And you wonder, how in the world does that fit in here? Well, I don't like it. I do not like buttermilk. I could never get past the smell of it. I don't like it. By itself, I wouldn't like baking soda, I'm sure. I've never tried it like that, but I know I wouldn't like it. By itself, I'm sure that flour would not be very palatable. But work together with other ingredients, some things that we all enjoy, hot biscuits in the morning. You see, that's something else again. There are a lot of things that are not good in and of themselves. And you can lose a lot of battles and still win the war, but I want to go to this passage that brings out a condition which, while perhaps implied in Romans 8, is not so explicitly stated as it is in the 12th chapter of Hebrews. The whole section is from about verse 5 down through about verse 11 or 12. We'll not look at all of that. But the section begins, Despise not the chastening of the Lord. Verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Now the King James and some other translations shocked our sensibilities. Because in the verses that follow, he uses a jarring, shocking term. He says, if he doesn't chasten you, you're bastards, illegitimate offspring. And the chastening of the Lord in your life is confirmation of sonship. It's confirmation of the legitimacy of your birth as a son or daughter of the Almighty. Well, you may be asking, yes, but what's the condition you're talking about? Well, you have it suggested in verse 5, despise not the chastening of the Lord. And you have it expanded and amplified on through the passage. We gave reverence to the fathers of our flesh when they chastened us, 
how much rather be subject or be in subjection to the Father of our spirits and live. What's the Hebrews writer saying? And I hope you'll just read and reread prayerfully and carefully Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 or 12. The Hebrews writer is saying, submit, be in subjection, don't despise it, be grateful for it, profit by it. I really believe that as to whether or not all things work together for my good spiritually, and that's my real good. Now, we could read Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, and we might even think and grow rich. Or we might read How to Win Friends and Influence People by Carnegie, and we might begin to do that. But if so far as our ultimate good is concerned and our eternal salvation is concerned, we're lost, lost forever, lost irrevocably, lost beyond any recall for all eternity, then none of the praise, none of the plaudits, none of the plenty, none of the affluence, none of the power really worked for any significant and certainly ultimate good. Didn't work for that. So there's a condition here. In the little book, The University of Hard Knocks, Ralph Parlett has made the suggestion it's not the size of the bump but the attitude of the bumpee that determines whether we're made bitter or better. All things work together for good. The context emphasizes prayer and the intercession of the Spirit. The context emphasizes the glory that shall be revealed. The context emphasizes all of this, the ultimate glory. But don't you see the events of our day-by-day lives would involve a sowing of seed for all eternity. And the important thing is not what's happening to us, but what's happening in us. It really doesn't matter so much what happens to us, whether I die from this disease or that disease, whether I live this long or that long, because it's not how long you live, but how you live. A sermon I've never preached here, but it's entitled, Have You Lived Too Long or Will You Die Too Soon? Some, described upon the page of God's Word, would almost seem to have lived too long if they'd only died earlier during that period of faithfulness before they were led into idolatry or whatever it might have been. It's not really how long you live, but how you live. It's not what happens to you, but it's what happens in you. And that's what God's concerned about. That's why James can write, Count it all joy when you fall into divers' trials. For the trying of your faith works patience, and let patience have a perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. James 1, verse 2 through about 4. Rejoice or glory in tribulation, Paul writes. And we do that, he said. We glory, we rejoice in tribulation because tribulation works steadfastness. And steadfastness, approvedness, and approvedness, hope, and hope put it not to shame because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which he has given unto us, Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. I don't know about your particular pressing problem. It may be illness. It may be apprehension about the future. It may be a habit that binds you. It may be a strength, hap- uh, a strength sapping, body weakening, influence, 
dissipating habit that you wrestle with, or maybe one near to you wrestles with that. It may be something very near to your heart. It may have been a seeming failure in something which seemed to you to be very, very important and you didn't come through like you wanted to. That's true of all of us. We've all had those experiences. Babe Ruth struck out 1,331 times for the 714 home runs. He had almost twice that many strikeouts. That's not to mention all the pop-ups to the infielders either. So you see, there are a lot of strikeouts. We've all had them. I remember distinctly, if I might share a personal one, shortly after we moved here, I had the opportunity to speak in one of the night sessions of the uh, teacher's workshop right here in town, uh, carried on by ACC. And I felt like if there was ever a time that I struck out, that was it, that I just went down swinging. Nothing I thought went right. I felt like the brother that read the chapter out of Romans and said there's some good things in here if we could ever get them out. I knew I had some good things in that lesson, and I felt like I never got them out. And you may have had an experience and came away from it feeling like, well, I was just a miserable failure in that. But I want to tell you, even with a view to your ultimate good, because you see, it's what happens in you that matters. It's character that relates to ultimate destiny that matters. Not what's happening to you, but what's happening in you. And I'm saying that these things can certainly work for your ultimate good, and God will work them that way if you'll let him. But our part is despising not the chastening of the Lord. Our part is being in subjection to the Father of our spirits in order that we might live. This Hebrews 12 passage goes on to say in verse 11, No chastening for the present seems joyous but grievous, but afterward, and in other translations, later, yieldeth the peaceable fruits of righteousness to them that are exercised thereby. Have you ever thought about God's later? Have you ever thought about God's afterward? Sometimes I've got to confess what I think about is the pressure right now. The obligations or the bills or the assignments or the responsibilities right now. You know what you and I need to think about? We need to think about God's afterward. We need to think about God's later. No chastening for the present seems joyous, but grievous. But later, but afterward yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness. Reflect upon God's later. Reflect upon that afterward. Wendell Wilkie, some of you will remember, a presidential candidate many years gone by, said what a man really needs to get ahead is a strong enemy. Edmund Burke, the great English statesman, said, our antagonist strengthens our muscles, sharpens our skills. Dr. Marie Ray studied carefully the lives of many notable men and women and said that in every case success was correlated with some disability and some heavy responsibility that seemed to be too great for one's own powers. And on the basis of careful research, the conclusion was reached that a handicap is necessary to success. 
Well, we all have those things. The question is, how are we going to use them? Paul had his thorn in the flesh. I have my fears, my apprehensions, my weaknesses, my personal inadequacies. You have your problems. The question is not, do we have them? The question is, what are we going to do with them? God will work them together. Not to make us all millionaires here. The all these things that shall be added, about which we even sang earlier today, from Matthew 6.33 would include what you shall eat, what you shall put on. The thing that concerns him most of all is our ultimate good. It's true that Christianity has the promise of a life which now is, but its greatest promise has to do with the life which is to come, First Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Ralph Erskine, from a pillow of piercing pain, said, I've learned more of God in this illness than ever before in my life. A Scottish pre preacher, Lighton, made essentially the same statement. So I'm saying there's a condition involved that gets back to our attitude toward what's happening to us because the important thing is what's happening in us. Look at the condition stated in Romans 8:28. All things work together for good to those or to them that love God, to them that are the call according to his purpose. I've stressed what that would seem to imply, but look at to them that love God. Do you love him? You say, oh, yes, I do. Well, he said, God the Son said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And let me ask you something else. You see, his love for us is this agape love. And we mean by that that he loves the unlovable, that while we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5. Am I only going to love him when I can strike a bargain with him and he meets it just like I think he ought to right now? Sometimes our faith and sometimes our love is affected because we say, well, he's not doing it like I think he ought to right now. Well, brother, if that's the way I love him, and maybe all of us have been tempted to that low love, but if that's the way I love him, that's not agape. Job came awfully close to this kind of love despite all his questions, despite all his struggling, when he said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He loved us when we were unlovable. Sometimes our attitude is, But why did you ever let this happen? But the attitude the Word would have us to have is a glory a rejoicing, a saying, this in itself may not be good, but he can condition upon my attitude and my accepting the chastening and my being in subjection to the Father of spirits. He can work this for my good. In 1929, Otto Foster was a very wealthy man. He didn't own a razor because he went to the barber shop every morning to get his shave. He was prominent in a civic club. He had lots of money, but by his own admission, he was living a very self-centered life. The Depression hit and took away everything that he had, everything. But after that, he was blessed spiritually and otherwise. But the otherwise included a being freed from the self-centered view of life that he, by his own admission, had earlier had. That had worked for his good. 
would have been for his good had he not even been prospered materially after the Depression. That still would have been good, really good. I want to read some words, and I must do this very quickly, and I'll bring this all to a focal point, but I want you to listen, because I believe we all need this. I don't know what it is you're wrestling with, but I believe you need this. I think all of us have had some faith problems, and I think sometimes our love has been less than agape toward God. Lord, we love you, and we'll love you just as long as you can keep doing things right on my timetable and hit my target dates and work it out like I think it ought to be right here and right now. And lots of times our view of good almost forgets the ultimate good. Friend of mine, you'd better see this passage in view of eternity. When time is no more, I think we'll better understand the great principle of Romans 8.28. But I want to read the words of William Cowper or William Cooper. I want you to listen to these great words that we sometimes sing. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his gracious will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. A woman had a very, very fine handkerchief made out of a very precious material, but a big blot of indelible ink had marred its beauty, and she gave it to John Ruskin, the great artist and art critic. He asked for it, actually, and she was surprised. She couldn't understand why he would want Material that, in her judgment, had already been ruined, but he asked for it, and she gave it to him. And he later brought it back with an extremely beautiful design, worked right out of that blot with the blot in the very center of it all. God works. And conditioned upon our loving him and despising not his chastening and being in subjection to the Father of spirits, he works his wonders to perform. And the great wonder of the ultimate glory is yet an object of hope. Don't rule out that dimension. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. Do not suffer from the myopia which sees it all only with a view to the here and the now and the present. But realize that we know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to them that are the called according to his purpose. And friend, if you love him, you'll keep his commandments. Soul, a Savior thou art needing, we're soon to sing. And you need, friend, that Savior because without him, things are not working together for your good. And you may be prospering, and you may be healthy, and everything may seem utopian in your life, but friend, it's not working for good at all. 
unless you can lay claim to that Savior, and if you've got him, everything can seem to be working the other way. As a Paul who was betrayed and beaten, who was beset by opposing Jews all his life, imprisoned and finally beheaded by Nero, could insist all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to them that are the called according to his purpose. Come to him today because you're needing that Savior. And come now while we stand and sing. <laughs>